the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to this 820 AM The Word broadcast special, Heart of the City. Pastors, ministry leaders, and churches have received a call to serve their communities with the love and compassion of Christ. The call is from God's heart to the heart of the city. This is Heart of the City. I'm Chuck Olmstead, the Director of Local Ministry Development for 820 AM The Word. My special guest today is John Wagenbelt. He's the founder and president of Multiplication Network. John, welcome to Heart of the City. Thank you very much, Chuck. Appreciate you having us here. We've had a chance just to chat for a few minutes before we started recording, and I can tell already that uh, you have a, a great story to tell. And uh, we're going to talk about Multiplication Network Ministries uh, in a little bit. The main purpose of this program is to have uh, pastors and ministry leaders share their personal walk into faith with Jesus. And I do that because sometimes people think that somehow pastors were born that way. And uh, you have an interesting story, and, and let's go back and talk about that for a minute. I saw in your bio you grew up and ended up in Argentina when you were how old? I was uh, one, uh, just one, when we went to Costa Rica. My parents learned Spanish there in San Jose at the School of uh, Linguistics there, and then went to Argentina down in the Patagonia, and we were there for 13 years. Wow. So you, so your formative years, you were growing up in Argentina. That's right. As a, as a well, we'd call an MK, a missionary kid. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So what was life like in Patagonia, <laughs> in Argentina? Well, just yesterday, somebody was asking me, you know, they, they go snowmobiling here in the in, in the beautiful mountains uh, around Seattle. And I said, you know, I've never had really an opportunity, and I'm just uh, looking forward to when I can go snowmobiling. I said what I was doing when I was a kid was chasing ostriches and looking for eggs so we could do tortillas. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So uh, was it a, a large uh, urban uh, setting, rural setting, where you lived? Uh, my dad uh, was a uh, church planter, a pastor, and also started a small, in fact, the only uh, Christian literature distribution center that there was, like a little Christian bookstore in Comodoro Rivadavia in Chubut, which is down in the Patagonia. It's an uh, oil uh, city uh, right on the bay there. And uh, so it was urban, but in a very, very uh, uh, kind of forgotten place of the world with very, very small percentage of evangelical Christians, less than 1% at that time. Most of Latin America actually in 1960, 1970 was maybe 2% evangelical. And since then has grown tremendously today, obviously about 15%, depending which country you're talking about. So in Argentina then, was it uh, primarily Catholic or what was the faith yeah, culture primarily, like? Primarily Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic. For most people, it would be saying, I'm Peruvian, so I'm Roman Catholic, or I'm Argentine, so I'm Roman Catholic. It's just kind of a given. So it's a cultural nomenclature. It doesn't symbolize an actual 
living faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior or a walk with the Lord where, where they read Scripture and pray or go to church. If, if they go to churches for one, once a year for a baptism of a relative or maybe on Easter Sunday they might go because the mom asked them to go to church with them. Mm-hmm. Other than that, uh, for a vast majority of the people, it's not um, something that they've considered a personal relationship with God. So how about for you? You grew up as a missionary kid. I'm sure you heard the gospel as a very young man, but as all of us know, it doesn't matter that your parents were believers, but what about you? That's right. I always remember the phrase that somebody said, God doesn't have grandchildren. Mm-hmm. In some ways, I think he does, but that, in terms of covenant theology, because he uh, loves the whole family and he loves, he's a God of the generations. But I do understand that that saying uh, betrays the, tru- the truth that every person eventually has to have their own encounter with Jesus Christ. And that was the case with me. What happened in, in my story, I, I was brought up as a Christian. I loved the thing. I loved the Lord. I loved the things of God. I loved the, the kingdom of God. I loved the church. But when I got back here, that move from Argentina to back to the United States was like pulling a little plant out when it's still, its roots are like in, getting into the dirt and you pull it out and then have to transplant it somewhere. It's a little bit painful. So my parents had five of us. I was the oldest of five kids. And for each of us, you know, to own our faith was part of, uh, of a journey. And mm-hmm. so for me, it was a little bit like extricating that little sapling tree and trying to put it now into the dirt of uh, a new a new planter. And so that was a little bit painful, but it made me think. It made me really think, who am I? You know, am I just a Christian because my dad's a pastor and a missionary and a church planter? Am I a Christian because I'm just a statistic that in the West there are higher probabilities that you will be a Christian? But had I been born in India, I'd be a Hindu. Had I been born in Vietnam, maybe I'd be a Buddhist. Had I been born in Russia, I'd be an atheist uh, communist. Is it just a random thing of sociology? And these intellectual questions kept bugging me. And so I said, I'm going to study this issue. And so I actually was in, uh, my dad ended up coming back and ended up in California. And in California, uh, I studied Buddhism and I made friends with a Buddhist monk Hmm. that wore, you know, the the typical saffron colored or orange type color uh, um, tunic. Hmm barefoot or with sandals, shaven head. And this is in Venice, California, not too far from where the Grace to You uh, people are. Sure, you know, John sure. MacArthur John MacArthur, I, sure. I, was, uh, I went to church in Van Nuys. Uh, no way. Church on the way. So you maybe know that just Oh, uh, Panorama mile, City, there? Yeah, there's right on, is huge, that Roscoe? Yes. yes. Just a little bit from there, there's a huge block that is a Buddhist yes, center. Yes, that's right. That's where I befriended. Uh, my dad was actually planting a Hispanic church, a Latino church, in Sun Valley, which mm-hmm. the only claim of for fame for Sun Valley is that it has the most uh, uh, car wreck, uh, you, you pick your part type uh, place. <laughs> oh, yep. But in that context is where my dad ministered, and it was a whole, uh, a whole experience also working with him on that. Well, so I'm trying to kind of think of the timeline. You're, what, 14, 15 years old. You're coming back into Southern California. Yeah, 16th birthday there. And it's, what, late 60s, early 70s? No, no, no. Now we're talking... Uh, 81, 82. 81. Okay. So that had to be a challenge to your faith because you mentioned in your biography here uh, that I read that 
uh, you're not only multilingual, but but you're multicultural. Mm-hmm. You grew up in a culture so different in mm-hmm. Argentina mm-hmm. as a missionary kid, and now you're in a fairly liberal Southern California in, <laughs> in the valley. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it was a shock. Yeah, it was. And so there are a couple strands to my story. One is the study of the Buddhism and wondering if Christianity was just one more religion, and I was trying to discern does, is this just a sociological phenomena, or is there a God and there are different attempts to get to know that God, but one of them is true, the other are false, or can, there all, can they all have some truth? Hmm. This was the question that was bugging me. And, of hmm. course, as a pastor's kid, I had access to the gospel story. Now I'm l- learning about the uh, fourfold path and uh, the, you know, the spokes and the wheel and the middle way and different tenets of, of what I remember that guy teaching me about Buddhism. I remember I wanted to take him to the Christian school where I was attending, Village Christian School and in Sun Valley, and they would not let me bring the monk to be my project because I, <laughs> I, instead of writing a project, I wanted to bring the monk to the sure, class. Sure, show and tell. I wasn't very happy about that. <laughs> But I understood later why they why they made that decision. Anyway, the other factor, the other strand was I had my first girlfriend, and I was exploring in my mind, why does a person love, and what is love? And do you love someone just because they're attractive to you? Do you love someone because they loved you first, and that being loved makes you feel good, so therefore you reciprocate and love back? So you can see that I had these philosophical, basically theological questions about what is love, and also, where is truth found? Mm. All the while, when I'm studying this, one final strand was that I looked at different uh, political theory, and I know I said I was at a young age, but because I had traveled a lot and then traveled then later on to some African countries, I was seeing the capitalist proposal, the communist proposal, socialist proposal, Marxist proposal. But one thing I saw is that wherever you studied revolutions and counter-revolutions, whoever were the oppressed, once they became liberated or came to power, usually they became the new oppressors. Mm -hmm. And whether it was a capitalist system or a communist system, wherever I looked around the world, what I found again and again is that man, no matter which philosophy he follows, man-made economic systems, eventually they're seeking their own good and not the good of others. So combine the strand of love, combine the strand of studying Buddhism, combine the strand with the political economic systems and people seeking their own good before the good of their neighbor. I said, is there a true revolutionary? Is there something different that a young guy can wrap his mind and heart around that is worth giving our life to? Because you're looking for meaning in life. And that's where the person of Jesus Christ just continually Hmm. kept blowing my mind that somebody would love so much, answering the question of love, love so much that he's willing to give his own life for me and for others. This I say, wow, this is amazing. This is worth looking into. And that's something that attracted me, the person of Jesus Christ, that God would give himself to die for the sins of the world, including mine. And so I had some uh, Baptist friends I was working out with, and uh, we worked in, in uh, cleaning and uh, janitorial work at that school in the summer. And I respected those guys because they were tough, but they were also uh, st- uh, s- uh, students of theology and Bible. They were older than I was and athletic guys. Right. And they said to me, hey, how long have you known the Lord, John? And so I was going, well, I've known him all my life, you know, because I grew up in a Christian home. But then I'd 
combining all these strands with those poignant questions they were asking me, uh, I finally realized I have to really make a decision here. Am I going to respond to God's love, who is the initiator of love? He gave me life. Can I now respond in gratitude? And so the day did come when I personally owned this. And I said, you know, I have to repent of my sins and acknowledge that I'm a fallen creature and that I need the grace, the mercy of God. And so after putting all these things in the mixer, only at the level at which a 17 or 18-year-old at that point can do, but with whatever understanding I had at the time, I could probably not articulate it then like I can now, but I was able to, uh, uh, by God's grace, to give my life over and say, from now on, I will dedicate my life to you and I will serve you. So that's a little bit about my uh, testimony. You're listening to Heart of the City. I'm Chuck Olmstead, the Director of Local Ministry Deve- Development, and with me is John Wagenvelt. He's the founder and president of Multiplication Network. You know, uh, part of the key scripture that I share about in um, uh, that's a, kind of the key scripture for my life is trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land, and feed on his faithfulness. Mm. Psalm 37, verse 3. Amen. God is faithful, isn't he? He is. I mean, God was not alarmed that you had these questions because they're the basic question of all people, isn't it? Many people ask these questions. Many people ask, and yet he's faithful. He he knows your parents, I'm sure, were praying for you, and we're trusting the Lord. But there has to be that personal decision, that personal commitment, that heartfelt transformation that, that takes place through the, the power of the Holy Spirit in our in our each individual. That's right. And so he did that for you. So then out of that— what? Uh, how did you then uh, make the decisions towards ministry? You know, early on, I, I always said I don't ever want to be a pastor. My dad's a pastor. I respect him. I admire his work. But I don't necessarily want to be a pastor. I want to be involved in the kingdom of God and in the mission of God in the world. But I don't necessarily want to be a pastor myself. And as they say, never say never, because sometimes God, with his sense of humor, puts you right into those quadrants. But... Um, what happened in my own calling into ministry was that we went on a missions trip when I was in college. I was studying at a small uh, Christian college called Dort College in Iowa. They sent us to Dominican Republic just to, on a vision trip, on a mission trip, short-term thing. And when we came back, we did a skit. We did some songs to the churches that supported us financially. We went to three or four churches just to thank them for having sent us, for the wonderful experience we had. And like is always said of or often said of small uh, uh, short-term mission trips, uh, the, the real beneficiaries are the people who go on the trip because they're more changed than the impact they might have made in just two weeks. So that's probably true here as well. When we came back, uh, they said, okay, we'll do the skit, we'll do the music, we'll show some pictures, but we need one of our group to just speak seven minutes and give a, a word of gratitude to the congregation and give a testimony. And nobody wanted to do it, and so all the buddies looked at me and said, you're going to be the one that does the speaking. And I was afraid of public speaking, very, very afraid and scared of public speaking. They say actually in America, the only thing that people are more afraid than public speaking is uh, snakes. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, so I said, well, okay, I don't have a choice. They're all pointing at me. So I prepared a little talk. So I would speak at, the, at, at, at a church. And then what happened is that afterwards, a lady came up to me at this church and she pulled me aside and she says, you're going to be a pastor, aren't you? And I said, no, ma'am, I'm not 
planning on that. Uh, I love the Lord, and I want to be part active in the church, but I don't necessarily want to be a pastor. So that was that. But then we did it at a second church. An older lady pulled me to a side and said, thank you for that talk. You're going to seminary, aren't you? And I said, no, that's not my plan. I'd like to be in, in international development or some other kind of work, but thank you so much for your kind words. Well, when it happened at the third place and a lady pulled me over, I don't know what it is with older ladies, but it was older <laughs> ladies in the three cases. Yeah. I still get yeah. like uh, goosebumps just thinking about it. But when she pulled me over and she said, you're going to be involved in missions work, aren't you? Then I had to stop and say, Lord, are you, Lord here's yeah. your servant. Here yeah. am I. Send me. What do I need to do? You know, And mm -hmm. uh, that was part of the journey. It was not the only thing, but these uh, three women in a row asking me at a young age, or pointing me in that direction mm -hmm. uh, definitely was a course changer for me. Yeah. Well, John, there's a lot we could talk about, I'm sure, between that beginning sense of calling to to where you're at right now as uh, a founder and president of, of Multiplication Network. And uh, we're going to leave that for another time. But uh, tell me how you felt the vision and the call to uh, to start Multiplication Network and what is Multiplication Network you Ministries? You bet. Thanks, Chuck, and I'd be glad to do that. I worked in two other uh, organizations. One was a denominational organization, and I was a missionary planting uh, a church and teaching at a small seminary in Puerto Rico where three of my four kids were b uh, born. And then after that, I spent almost a decade at a nonprofit that helped distribute the scripture around the world. So that uh, amplified my global vision. So I had some experience in the denominational world, in missions and church planting, and some experience in nonprofit leadership. All those things combined with a master's and a doctorate that I've done since then, uh, the Lord used those to say, here's the niche that I'm putting a passion in your heart and in your mind. So for his glory, uh, that area is the strategic importance of planting healthy communities of faith. I believe that healthy communities of faith are the hope of the world. Now, when I first heard that phrase, I said, no, wait a minute. Jesus is the hope of the world, not the local church. But when you think about it theologically or biblically, biblically uh, Jesus, for example, when uh, the apostle Paul is persecuting the church, Jesus takes it personally and says, why, Paul, are you persecuting me? So Jesus takes it personally, even in Scripture, that the persecution of, of the church is the persecution of Jesus. So the church is the body, Jesus is the head, but it's one body that belongs to Jesus Christ. So in that sense, biblically, courageously, but with humility, the church is a representative of what God is doing in his sovereign rule over all creation. And so... Uh, I think that many people don't realize there are tens and tens of thousands of communities that have no evangelical church, not Baptist, not Presbyterian, not Pentecostal, not Assemblies of God, not Church of God, of no type. And I just got back from Spain where we uh, grad and in Portugal where we graduated our uh, one of the first batches of uh, uh, church planners, specifically in Portugal. And it's incredible that you can go town after town after town, some of them with five, ten, fifteen thousand people, and there is no single evangelical church, let alone when you talk about Africa, Latin America, Asia, where thankfully the gospel is growing like wildfire. But we need uh, uh, to make more and more people conscious that one of the best things you can do for sustainable, transformative change is to plant 
a local church so that when the short-term people are gone, when the dollars or the euros are gone, you have left behind trained leaders and men and women, young and old, who are a community of faith that uh, represent God's interests of being salt and light in that community. On this station, we have many appeals for many different things. Sometimes it's building wells. Sometimes it is providing food or medical resources for uh, for those villages. And I know that there is discussion in the Christian community which comes first. But the reality is, as you were talking about, the gospel is what gives hope, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's um, long-term hope, if you will. I can give you a cup of water, and you're not going to be thirsty for a while. But if there is no spiritual formation within that village and within those people, you can give all the water you want and all the food you want, and there may be a level of prosperity, but yet the prosperity of the heart is not going to be there. Yeah, that's right. I believe in a holistic gospel, and I believe that uh, Jesus loves the whole person, body and soul. He loves us as we are. He created us. He sustains us, and he wants us to go forward. The important point that I would make, if this were the last thing that I could say, I would say two quick stories. One is you hear about, for example, someone goes with a group, you know, they all go with green T-shirts or orange T-shirts. They're excited. They come back with a video of when they dug that well and the water was flowing and the children are splashing in it. It's beautiful. Right. It's great. What they don't show is that six months later, maybe the henchman, the, the, the strongman of the village took over that well and now has his guys with pistols there and people have to line up with money in their hand to pay for the water that some American Christian group came and done. Who hasn't done the studies or seen the results of buildings that were built by foreigners and then they get the phone call, hey, come take, come paint your building. There was no local ownership. What if that well had been dug in the context of a community of faith, image bearers of God himself who are uh, bearing image to the uh, triune God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the first community. And these communities are now taking care of that um, uh, well of water, and they're giving living water and at the same time physical water, but taking care of it in a sustainable way. Same thing with human trafficking. It's great to work and support uh, 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 the effort against the sex trade, but you you help one girl and an uncle in some village is sending another girl or two or three to replace her to the big city where where the girls are being trafficked. What if in all those villages we start planting the Word of God and planting healthy churches where that uncle can come to faith and understand that that little girl that he's selling into prostitution is actually a child of God made in the image of someone who loves that girl. That can That's where real change can happen and you start working where the supply is. Amen. Amen. Well, John, we could we could talk a, uh, a whole lot more about this, but we're we're running out of time, and I want to make sure that we're able to get uh, the website for Multiplication Network. It is multiplicationnetwork.org, and our local contact here in the Seattle area is Steve Chittenden, and he's given us permission to give his cell number. And so Steve's cell number is 425-238- 9018-425-238-9018 and it's multiplicationnetwork.org a biblically based church planting 
organization. Thank you so much. And yeah, anyone who would like to call us or contact us for either church plant or training support to train nationals, we would love to talk with you. Or sending scriptures to our brothers and sisters in China, please contact us. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. You've been listening to this 820 AM, the word special heart of the city. For more information on how your pastor or your ministry can be featured on 820 AM, the word, call Chuck Olmstead. 206-269-6216 or go to thewordseattle.com.